The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Let me just begin by saying what a tremendous joy uh, it is to be with you this morning. Uh, Both my wife, uh, Molly, and I uh, send you greetings from Louisville, Kentucky. And you say, but Grant just said that you were teaching in England and you certainly don't sound like an Englishman. Uh, Well, no, um, I'm not originally from England, originally from Kentucky. Uh, So that's obviously the more uh, deep southern accent uh, that uh, that you perhaps hear. Well, Grant and I, our friendship um, goes back many years, as he has communicated to you uh, this morning. It's one of the tremendous joys of my life uh, to call Grant a friend and his precious family, uh, knowing them for so many years. Seeing one another in the halls at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, Uh, talking endlessly about lots of dead guys like the Puritans and Martin Lloyd-Jones and so many other heroes of the faith that we share. And just knowing that I prayed for you uh, as Grant was in discussions about coming here to Raleigh to pastor this church, um, I was praying for you and praying for him uh, that God's will would indeed be accomplished and done And obviously it has, and God is abundantly blessing this congregation. Well, let's open God's Word, shall we, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. And would you please join me in a word of prayer? Our great God and Father, we approach your throne this morning only through the blood of Christ. For he, in his perfect work on the cross, and his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection, has given us access into the holy place where you are enthroned in majesty and glory. And Father, we come this morning worshiping you. We come, Father, now informing our worship through the exposition of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would allow us to see things that are fresh and new, and that by your presence among us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would be our pastor and our shepherd, and that you would speak to our hearts and 
graciously and lovingly apply Your Word to our minds. Father, we pray today that You would help us see Jesus. Bless our time together now, we pray and ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Mark chapter 9, I would like to draw your attention this morning, uh, beginning in verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth can bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Well, this morning, friends, we have the enormous privilege of being taken by the Holy Spirit, as it were, to an event that only three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are allowed to witness. This event appears for us not only here in Mark chapter 9, but also in a couple parallel accounts, both in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9. In fact, I believe that the Apostle John even had this very event on his mind and heart when he penned in the opening words of his own gospel the familiar verse of John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke tells us in his parallel account in Luke chapter 9, that on this particular evening, Jesus chooses three disciples to ascend Mount Hermon to pray. 
But why? Why does Jesus see the need at this particular juncture within His earthly ministry? Why does Jesus see the need to take these disciples up this mountain for a prayer meeting? Well, we have to go back, don't we, in Mark chapter 8. Notice in Mark chapter 8 verse 29 and the Apostle Peter's grand confession of Jesus as the Christ in response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? Peter affirms in chapter 8 verse 29, would you notice, you are the Christ. But then notice verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus begins to warn them that when they come into Jerusalem which they are on their way to Jerusalem during this very chapter, he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. And so right on the hills of Peter's great confession of Jesus being the Messiah, the Messiah for whom they have waited all their lives, Jesus says, when they come into Jerusalem, he is going to die. Now, can you imagine? This is not what they wanted nor what they expected to hear. You see, their whole lives had been spent looking for the Messiah to arrive, to assume the throne of Israel, to command military leadership, and to deliver them from their oppressors. But here Jesus comes along and He crushes all their messianic expectations and informs them that to embrace the true Messiah is not to embrace a military leader, but to embrace the true Messiah is to embrace a suffering servant. And we can imagine, can't we, that the disciples would be deflated and the disciples would be discouraged from the pinnacle of their recognition of Jesus as the Christ to now hearing that Jesus is going to die has driven them from the summit of their heart's desire to the valley of despair. And this is the way of the Christian life, isn't it, friends? You'll never find anywhere in Scripture that defines the Christian life with smooth sailing, with no troubles and no suffering. 
And lest we should forget that, Jesus reminds us here that perhaps when we think we have everything figured out and everything seems to be going perfectly, how quickly we can go from the mountaintop to the depths of the valley when all of our hopes and all of our dreams are crushed. And I believe we see here in Mark chapter 9 our Lord's desire to comfort these disciples in their discouragement. And so they make their way up this mountain to pray. There's something so beautiful, I believe, here, isn't there? Something so beautiful about Jesus' love and compassion for His own. He's about to comfort Peter, James, and John with joys greater than deliverance from their earthly oppressors. He's about to give them something to behold that they can carry in their hearts for the rest of their lives. He's about to anchor their hopes not in military might, but in the realities of divine glory. And so as we begin to walk through this passage together this morning, I'd like us to see five things that really act for us, if you will, as markers. As we look at each marvelous event in this text that takes place on this mountain, five markers that really we can wrap our arms around some of these glorious truths that provide for us hope and joy even in our own Christian journey. The first thing we see here in the text before us is the actual event for which Jesus led them up on the mountain. And we'll call this the alteration of Christ. The alteration of Christ. Notice verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now, according to the Apostle Luke, in the middle of their prayer meeting, the disciples, as we see them often doing, as perhaps you have done in the past during a long prayer meeting, the disciples fall asleep. And the text doesn't tell us who woke up first, but whoever it must have been would have been shocked to such a degree that they begin immediately to wake up the others. Look at verse 2 again. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so that no one on earth, as no one on earth, could bleach them. Now just imagine the scene. The disciples fall asleep during what is proven to be a very long prayer meeting and when they wake up, Jesus is before them glowing brilliantly white. Luke says that he was dazzling. He even uses the word glittering as it is sometimes translated. 
If you go, go over to the gospel of Matthew, for instance, Matthew adds in his gospel account that Jesus' face was shining as bright as the sun. It was as bright, he says, as a flash of lightning. Have you ever opened your eyes after a very deep sleep to bright light shining in your eyes, perhaps from the window or a long airplane ride across the ocean, as I have done several times, and as you begin to wake up and you've flown through the night and people start to pop open their windows and the sun fills the plane and you're rubbing your eyes, and it takes you a few moments to gain your composure, as it were, and almost rub the sleep from your eyes and focus and see what you're looking at. And the disciples are setting up, and they're rubbing the sleep from their eyes, and what they see before them is the Lord Jesus Christ blazing as bright as the sun. Mark tells us that he was transfigured before them. The Greek word there is the word from which we derive the word metamorphosed. You know what that word means, don't you? Perhaps what comes into your mind immediately is a caterpillar that crawls and weaves a cocoon around itself only to emerge from that cocoon completely changed and different. You see, for a brief moment on this mountaintop, high above Israel, Hanging between heaven and earth, if you will, the veil of Jesus' humanity is lifted and His true divine eternal glory is allowed to shine through. We know that during His incarnation that Jesus had laid aside this glory in order to walk among us as a man. But here we are in a moment when Jesus is allowing that glory to once again return. Now it's vital here, friends, to note that this is not light shining on Jesus. This is not the sun beaming upon Jesus and illuminating Him. This is not beams of the sun or some heavenly divine light that is beaming through the clouds like a divine spotlight upon Him. That's not what this is. No, this is light that has originated from Jesus Himself. For He is the source of of this light. The unveiling of His glory is both reflecting back to His pre-incarnate state when for all of eternity the Lord Jesus Christ enjoyed the sweetness and the delight of fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
It's also friends looking forward when Jesus will be unveiled before the cosmos as king when he returns to the earth with robes shining brighter than the sun and his eyes as flaming fire. John tells us in Revelation that in the eternal kingdom there will be no need for the moon. There will be no need for the sun. There will be no need for the stars. For Jesus Christ will be its light. And here on the ground is Peter, James, and John. Speechless, motionless, and lifeless as the magnificence of Jesus is glowing in their eyes. Now keep in mind Jesus' words about His suffering and His death, which is fresh upon their minds and hearts. There is such an intense encounter that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. Surely this is false. You've lost your mind. What are you talking about when we come into Jerusalem that you're going to be arrested, tried, and crucified? This is nonsense, Jesus. And Jesus takes Peter aside and he begins to rebuke him speaking through Peter to Satan saying Satan get behind me And so there's this intense encounter with Jesus rebuking Peter in such a way because Jesus knows what is coming and no doubt the weight of being our sin bearer is laying heavy upon him. But here in this moment, regardless of what was on his mind, his heart's desire is to comfort his disciples and visibly confirm before them Peter's words, you are the Christ. This was Jesus saying in great glory, yes, I am. And you see now, their faith is becoming sight. You see, Jesus wants these disciples to take what they are seeing and hearing and experiencing into their hearts and hold it close when the painful passion of his death begins. And this very transfiguration is meant to be their source of joy and consolation in the darkest valley of their lives. And Jesus' desire is to do the same with us in this moment. He's not only reminding his disciples but He's reminding you and I that in our darkest moments, in our most desperate circumstances, never forget His glory. How easy it is, like Peter, 
when he was walking on the water to lose sight and focus and to take our eyes and to take our attention off of Jesus and to place it, as it were, on lesser things. And if you'll allow me to put it like this, never just focus on the sadness of the cross without also keeping in mind the glory of what happened three days later. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. In this glorious moment, I'm going to die. But don't you dare forget, I'm coming back. And as if that sight of Jesus radiating in glory isn't enough for us to take in, There are two other individuals who step onto the scene and join Jesus in this glory. And we'll call this the arrival of two prophets. Would you notice in verse 4? And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Two of the greatest Old Testament figures with whom they would all have been familiar with and whom the disciples would have heard about all of their lives appear on the scene. Now, it's vitally important, friends, to keep in mind that this is not a vision. The disciples are not dreaming this. This is not a daydream. This is not some mystical illusion. No, Elijah and Moses have emerged from heaven and joined Jesus in this conversation. Scripture isn't clear at this point uh, why that Elijah and Moses are the two individuals that appear with Jesus. Why not, for instance, Abraham and Elisha or Isaiah and Jeremiah? We don't particularly know, but we can affirm that Moses and Elijah were the two grand representatives of God's covenant people. Moses as the great lawgiver and Elijah as the great prophet. But not only are they representatives of God's people, they are also representatives of God's history. That is, Moses and Elijah serve as a kind of summary of all of God's work and revelation within the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, we read, don't we, of the law and the prophets. For instance, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is speaking of John, and he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. In Acts 24, for instance, when the apostle Paul stands before Felix at Caesarea, he declares in Acts 24, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is called a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. 
And so while the Jews may think that the ministry of Christ is inconsistent with Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the prophet, them appearing with Jesus in his glory is a tremendous statement to the contrary. In fact, this culminating sign is saying to us that they are in agreement with Jesus' ministry and stand as one grand revelation of God to man. Here is the law and here is the prophets. And like two grand rivers, Moses and Elijah flow flow from God's history and now converge in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who Himself is the second Moses and the great prophet. You're familiar, aren't you, with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. And so here before Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah appear as grand representatives of all of God's history converging upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is saying, this is my son. The final revelation that I will give. Notice the end of verse 4. They were talking with Jesus. Now, what are they talking about? Well, Luke chapter 9 tells us they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. In other words, they were talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And so here is the scene, the chief representative of the law and the chief representative of the prophets were carrying on a conversation with Jesus who himself had said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Now keep in mind this was meant for the disciples. They were to take all of this into their minds and hearts as a point of great encouragement. And what an amazing sight. Here is Jesus sparkling and glittering and dazzling against the black backdrop of the stars as this spectacular scene shone like diamonds off the snow of Mount Hermon. And here is Jesus talking with Moses who had been dead 1,400 years and he's talking with Elijah who had went to heaven 900 years ago. And friends, if there was ever a time for silence and contemplation, 
this was it. Shall I put it in a more vernacular vocabulary? If this was ever a time in which you should have kept your mouth shut, this was it. But here we come to the audacity of Peter. Now, Peter was a man who always said something when nothing should be said. Now, I know none of you know anyone like that, and I can assure you that none of you are like that. And into this perfect scene enters Peter in verse 5. Then Peter answered, And said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for you that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, what in the world is Peter up to? Well, most of the time we have no idea what's going through Peter's mind. Perhaps this was Peter being courteous. It's like a courteous reflex. Uh, What's going on before him? You you know, Peter's thinking someone needs to say something. It's kind of awkward in this moment, so so I'll just say something. I'm just going to put this out there. He wanted to make tabernacles for their heavenly visitors so, so the disciples could wait upon them and serve them. Now, some think that Peter thought, Jesus, six days ago, I told you you were wrong. I told you that death stuff was nonsense. This is it. Finally, the kingdom has come. All of this nonsense about suffering and death couldn't be true. Let's make tabernacles and begin the reign of glory now. This is it. Let's set up thrones. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We know in Mark chapter 8 that Peter wants to avoid the suffering of the cross. He wants to avoid this suffering so much that in just a very short time he will deny that he even knows Jesus three times. We can only speculate what's going on in Peter's mind and heart, but Scripture does tell us Jesus' response to Peter's suggestion. Would you look there? Scripture tells us Jesus' response. You haven't found it. Because Jesus' response is complete silence. Thankfully, my friends, thankfully, our Lord knows what we need better than we know what we need. And just like He does here with Peter in this moment, He excuses the ignorance of our words. This is not, this is a time for worship, for contemplation, for meditation, for comfort, Peter. 
This is not a time for work. This is not a time for conquest. This is not a time for reigning. Now something else happens here in verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. We'll call this the awesomeness of God's glory. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. Now this is not an ordinary cloud passing over Mount Hermon. No, this is not some puffy cumulus cloud that's passing over the summit of this mountain. If you think back to your reading of the Exodus and Israel's wilderness wanderings, you'll remember that a cloud went before the children of Israel to guide them in the wilderness. That cloud was known as someone said to me this morning, the Shekinah glory of God. And with this cloud, you knew, when this cloud was present, you knew that this was a visible representation of the presence of God among His people. This was the same glorious cloud that passed by Moses as God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and only allowed Moses to see the afterglow of his beauty and glory as he passed by him in Exodus 33. This is the same glorious cloud that engulfed the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, so much so that it filled the holy place so that Moses and the other priests could literally and physically not enter the tabernacle. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we see that this glorious cloud filled the temple of Solomon on the day of dedication, so much so that the priests could not enter. It had been, my friends, 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen this cloud. Six hundred years since anyone had laid eyes on God's Shekinah glory. But here on this mountain is Jesus, Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah, and they are overshadowed by God's presence of Shekinah glory as God steps onto this mountain. Now let me just point out to you that Peter, James, and John were only allowed within this glory because Jesus was with them. And Jesus in this glory is serving as their mediator. For without the sinless Lamb of God as our mediator who stands as our substitute in our place, sinners would be annihilated in the presence of such refulgent glory. We're reminded of 
the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, of the moment when every believer in Christ will look forward to when Christ will descend in the clouds of glory to return for His church. That doesn't mean, friends, Jesus is going to be riding a white, puffy, cumulus cloud. No, this is Jesus descending from the throne of heaven at the Father's right hand in the refulgent glory of the divine trinity returning for His church. And someday we are going to be in that cloud. This, my friends, is that blessed hope that we're to hold on to. That we're to to wrap our arms around and to recall to our minds and hearts in the deepest and darkest of times political upheaval, pandemic conditions, economic collapse, terroristic threats, cultural demise all around us. If you know Christ by faith, you have this hope of future glory. Regardless of what may be going on outside, we are going to join Jesus in this cloud and so shall we be forever with the Lord. And let me say to you this morning, if you do not know Christ by faith and this hope is not yours, I urge you today to repent and turn from your sin and embrace Christ by faith. You see, this is this very reality that Jesus is giving his beloved disciples is before he takes them to the cross. You see, the cross must come before the crown. The suffering must come before the glory. But Jesus is saying in all of his beauty and loveliness on this mountain, On this evening, Jesus is saying that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the cross, remember that glory is coming. And hold on to that. And wrap your arms around it. And this cloud comes and overshadows them. And then we have the affirmation of the Father. One final scene that takes place here. A voice comes out of the cloud saying in verse 7, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Now this is the voice of God the Father, isn't it? Who said almost the same exact thing at Jesus' baptism. I would invite you to turn over with me to 2 Peter Chapter 1, 2 Peter, chapter 1.
And I want to draw your attention in 2 Peter chapter 1 to verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this phrase, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter's thinking back to this very moment on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, that majestic glory is the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud that was on this mountain. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what does God the Father say to Peter, James, and John? He says, hear him. Listen to him. Now, this isn't a suggestion. This is a command. And what exactly is the Father saying to them through this statement? What He's saying is simply this. The law and prophets were only partial expressions, the very realities that Moses and Elijah represented are only partial realities and shadows, but here crowned in glory is my final statement, this is my beloved son, hear him. This is Jesus Christ as the ultimate expression of truth. Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ as the ultimate promise of everything that the prophets said. Everything that has come before, all that God has said before, all that God has done before, now converges in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is saying, listen to Him. J.C. Ryle, an English pastor of whom perhaps you're familiar, said this. You have in these words, and he's referring to this verse, you have in these words a striking lesson to the whole church of Christ. There is a constant tendency in human nature to hear man, bishops, priests, Deacons, popes, cardinals, councils, Presbyterian and independent ministers are continually exalted to a place where God never intended them to feel and made practically to usurp the honor of Christ. Against this tendency, he tells us, watch and be on your guard. Let these solemn words of this vision ever ring in your ears Hear Christ. Ryle goes on to say, the best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are but sinners who need a Savior. Holy, 
useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all, they must never be allowed to stand between you and Christ. This is a command to Peter, James, and John to listen to what Jesus has said about the necessity of his death when they come into Jerusalem. This is, this is a command to Peter, James, and John that you must embrace the paradox of the cross. This is a command for them to embrace Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Listen to him. Back to Mark 9, notice verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The Shekinah glory of God had departed. Jesus' skin and his clothing was no longer blazing with light. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. The voice of the Father had stilled. And the disciples see only Jesus backlit by the billions of stars that He had created. My friends, this is what all of our experience, all of our theology, all of our ministry should come to. Seeing only Jesus. And when this happens, when this happens, our hearts honor Him in worship. We love one another as we should. We give our lives in His service. We embrace the paradox of the cross. We deny ourselves and we pick up the cross and we faithfully follow Him. Only seeing Jesus. Now, not only is Jesus encouraging His disciples here, but He's also encouraging us. And there's several things from this very event of the transfiguration to aid us in that encouragement. Let me give you just a few final thoughts in conclusion. First, this event affirms the divinity of Christ. This event affirms for us the divinity of Christ. It reminds us that Christ is indeed the Son of God. 
The second person of the Holy Trinity being very God and very eternal God. The brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him who made the world. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. This is not a mere man. This is not just a nice prophet who had some nice things to say. This is not the great teacher. No, this event affirms Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God. Secondly, it affirms that Christ is the culmination of God's revelation to man. That He is the one to whom the Old Testament Scriptures point. He is the one of whom the New Testament Scriptures speak. And only in Him do we live and move and have our being. Thirdly, it affirms that God the Father delights in His Son. That God the Father is pleased by His Son's perfect work through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Number four, it affirms that though we now see Him by faith, that one day our faith will become sight. As we behold Him in the glory of His kingdom, when we all fall before our faces and cry out, Worthy is the Lamb. Number five, it affirms that Christ being very God and very man is the only one worthy and capable of paying the penalty for our sin and becoming our substitute. It affirms Jesus is the only one worthy of being our sin bearer. This is the whole purpose for him going to Jerusalem. Beloved, this is the whole purpose for which he was born, for which he came to die and on the third day rise. Number six, the transfiguration affirms that the kingdom of God is not brought about by force. The kingdom of God is not brought about by military conquest, but rather servanthood humility that embraces the cross for the joy that was set before him and finally it affirms that Christ's heart is always concerned with his children and through this glorious event regardless of what you may be enduring at this moment. Glory is coming. Put yourself with Peter, James, and John. And my call to you this day is to embrace the whole Christ, the God-man who gave his life as a substitute on a cruel cross, rose triumphant from the dead over death, 
hell and the grave, has ascended to the majesty of his Father and is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. This same Jesus calls us now to repentance and faith. Listen to Him. Father, we thank You for our time together this morning. In Your Word, it is my sincere prayer that someone has heard Your Word and been touched by this comforting event that transforms us from one degree of glory to the next in beholding the glory of of Christ. Father, draw people to Yourself now through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Cause our hearts to worship You. For we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website capitalcommunitychurch.com.